Okay. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here today. Fine looking crowd. You look uh, peaceful. Look like you come in peace. So I come in peace as well. So let's begin our class this morning with a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all the blessings you give us. We thank you for this place of safety and comfort that we have to gather to study another portion of your word. We pray that as you speak to us through your word, that it will strengthen us, that it will give us the hope to carry on through this life. We pray that we will admonish one another, help one another, and most of all, share the message that you have left with the lost and dying world. We ask you to be with the sick, be with those who are caring for the sick, and we pray that you forgive each of us of our sins as we repent of them, and we pray that we will be better servants of yours tomorrow because of our obedience and our study. All these things we ask in your son's name. All right, we are in the book of Samuel. And I'd like to commend Robert, done a fantastic job last week. I think he's found his gift and and calling and teaching. I was really uh, learned a lot from his class last week. Um, there was a lot of things that was brought out in the class, and it's it's amazing to me the the many times that you read through a piece of scripture, the different things that jump off of the page. And I've always wondered why. You know, we read something, and then there's certain things that that we see that really jumps off the page. But I've I've meditated on it a bit, and y'all share with me your thought as well. But I think it's got a lot to do with where you're at on the journey of life. You know, different things that you read are going to apply differently depending on where you're at on your journey. Any comments? Anyone else? I mean, do you read and things just keep jumping off that page? You read it year after year. Uh, I try to read chronologically through the Bible. I try to do it every year. But... You make notes, and then you go back through, and it's like there's something else that immediately jumps off the page. It's just so amazing how God's Word is that way. Before we jump into the lesson, I'd like to share something with you that I've shared classes that I've taught. It's titled, Is the Bible the Inspired Word of God? During a question and answer session, at a recent speaking engagement, a university student asked me, why do you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Now this is a very interesting question and probably one that most important questions any Christian could ask themselves. Well, what is so special, so unique about the Bible 
that Christians believe it is literally to be the inspired Word of God. In answering this student's question, I encouraged him to consider the following facts about the Bible. First, the Bible is not just one single book. This is a more common misconception that many people realize, especially with people who do not come from a Judeo-Christian background. Rather than being a single book, the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books, which is called the Canon of Scriptures. These 66 books contain a variety of history, poetry, prophecy, wisdom literature, letters, and apocalyptic. Second, these 66 books were written by 40 different authors. These authors came from a variety of backgrounds, shepherds, fishermen, doctors, kings, prophets, and others. And most of these, most of these authors never knew one another personally. Third, these 66 books were written over a period of 1,500 years. Yet again, this is another reminder that many of these authors never knew or collaborated with one another in writing these books. Fourth, the 66 books of the Bible were written in three different languages. In the Bible, we have books that were written in the ancient languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic a reflection of the historical and cultural circumstances in which each of these books were written. And finally, these 66 books were written three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Once again, this is a testament to the varied historical and cultural circumstances of God's people. Think about the above realities. 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages, on three different continents. What's, what's more, this collection of books shares a common storyline, the creation, fall, and redemption of God's people, a common theme, God's universal love for all of humanity, and a common message, salvation is available to all who repent of their sins and commit to the following of God all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. In addition to sharing these commonalities, these 66 books contain no historical errors or contradictions. God's Word truly is an amazing collection of writings. After I had shared the above facts with the student, I offered him the following challenge. I said to him, if you do not believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, if you do not believe that the Bible is of supernatural origin, then I challenge you to attest. I said to the student, I challenge you to go to any library you like and find 66 books which match the characteristics of the 66 books in the Bible. You must choose 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages written on three different continents. However, they must share a common storyline, a common theme, a common message, with no historical errors or contradictions. I went on to say, if you can produce such a collection of books, I will admit that the Bible is not the inspired Word of God. 
The student's reply was almost instantaneous. He emphatically stated, but that's impossible. But that's impossible. But that's impossible. Truly is impossible for any collection of human writings. However, the Bible passes the test. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, three different languages, three different continents, with no historical errors or contradictions. The entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, bears the mark of divine inspiration. The next time you encounter someone who asks you why you believe the Bible, isn't why you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Try sharing this challenge with them. Better yet, don't wait until you're asked. Just go ahead and share the challenge with a friend. You don't even have to mention. Just ask them if they think it would be realistic to assemble such a collection of books. After they say, but that's impossible, you've got a ready-made opportunity for sharing the truth of God's word, word with somebody. If you'd like a copy of this, I can get you a copy or I can give you the link to the, to the webpage where I found this. I thought it was very good. I like to remind myself and others when we study a book, when we open up God's word, what we're actually opening up. And that kind of reminds me of the truly amazing book that, that we often take for granted when we study. Question, why do we study this book? Why do we study the Bible? Y'all don't be shy. Raise your hand. For our learning, okay. Anybody else? Okay, it's God's command to learn who God is. Okay. Okay. So we can share it. Okay. Encouragement and hope. So we can obey his commands. Exactly. Okay. Repetition. Repetition's good. So anyone else? It's kind of like our, uh, you know, we buy something new and it's got either assembly or hopefully we're already assembled, but it has operating instructions. And oftentimes we don't want to read the operating instructions or the maintenance. And it usually ends up not being good. So the Bible is the same way for us. How do we study the Bible? Okay. We've got to read it, obviously. We gather, like today, together and study it. We share each other's uh, hopefully we interpret it the same way, but sometimes things are interpreted differently. Anyone else? Reread it, okay? Um, I remember one time we were studying at someone's house, and an older gentleman that was leading the study, many of y'all know who he is, uh, Jack Ray, and he made a statement when... You, you want to find out everything the Bible has to say about a certain scripture before you interpret it. And that way it, it does not 
end up being a false interpretation or you don't have two scriptures that are uh, in contradiction with each other. And that's stuck with me all these years, and, and he's exactly right. A lot of times people will pull scripture out, and uh, if you don't know the history behind it, before it and after it, sometimes you'll take the context. When do we study this book? Do we just study it here when we gather? Daily. Okay, once a day, multiple times a day. It, it varies for our schedules and, you know, but hopefully once a day we try to open up God's word and let him speak to us. Anyone else? So, okay. All right. Okay. Okay, how do we apply the lessons lessons that we gain from study? How do we apply some things that we read? It's it's kind of hard and for me sometimes to make the application. How do we apply things that we read? What what what's the Bible consist of basically? Okay. But what what is the Bible what is there that 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 we can relate to and use it to apply to our life? What what mainly is in the Bible? People and and their story and God giving them commands and what they did with that command and how it affected them down the road by their choice. Does that make sense? It's about choices and and how we apply God's word. Last week, um, Robert generated some thoughts, and and I I thought, well, they're going to hear enough of me next week, so I I tried to not raise my hand as much as as I wanted to. But when we were talking about Hannah's prayer, and and we we were talking about um, fervent prayer, and I got to really thinking about that this week, and... um, when is it that we fervently pray? When we're in trouble. I'm sorry. Okay. Bad times. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. What do all these have in common? Need. What else? Fear. Okay. But what do all these have in common? Out of your control, we fervently pray. We pray for a lot of things, and, and, and we know what we're capable of doing and our choices and how they affect the things we pray for. But ultimately, God is in control of all of it, even the stuff that, that we feel like we're in control of. We fervently pray when we feel like I can't do anything about it, it's totally in God's hands. I, I just I wanted to bring that out because that I never really thought about it that that much. So, all right, I'm going to start in at verse 27. I know Robert was kind of rushed and ran out of time, so I'm going to back up to to 27 and. 
I'd like to ask for some good readers. Um, I know there's some in here. If you'd like to read, just raise your hand. All right. Brother Wiley, could you start in at 27 and just 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 read down through the end of chapter 2, please. Second chapter. Thank you. Okay, verse 27. The man of God comes to Eli and says to him, Thus says the Lord, the man of God speaks to Eli as if he is God Almighty himself. The conversation goes all the way back to Egypt when God chose the tribe of Levi to be the source of all who would serve him as priests and make the sacrifices and offerings just as God had commanded. Exodus 28, 1 through 4, Exodus 30, 7 and 8, and Leviticus 8, 7 and 8. The prophet here is reminding Eli, as the descendant of Aaron, of the blessings and privileges of God that God had given them. God accuses Eli of honoring his sons more than he honored God, making themselves fat with the best of the offerings. Eli's sons disrespected the sacrifices as described in verses 12 through 17. They took more than their appointed portion. What else were they doing that was not according to God's commands? What exactly were they supposed to be doing? That's, that's what we're looking for here. Let's, let's go to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7. And let's see what God actually commanded for the priest to do. Okay. Another good reader. Who, who would like to read? Any? Okay. Uh, let's do verses 22 um, through 34. Yes. Now, this is what they were supposed to be doing. But obviously they were not doing this at all. Um, and another thing too is I went back and read through all the procedures of offerings and sacrifices. And they all have a rhythm to them. And it's, it's not like something that, that they would have mistakenly not got right because they were all similar. They had basically the same rhythm and process that God had, had commanded them to do. But obviously, um, they took the, the physical need for the food and their instant gratification over the process that God had given them. If, if you go back and read everything that they had to do with the offerings and sacrifices I'm so glad we're not under the old law. And, you know, you keep, you hear people say that they couldn't keep the old law. When you go back and read everything that they had to do, and you think about trying to do that today, it, it, it's daunting. Even though they had the priest designated to do that work, but even, even just keeping everything supplied to the priest and all the things that had to take place the way God commanded it, it is, it's just daunting. So, Questions or comments? Okay, we'll move on. 
the thing about Eli's sons, um, I got to kind of uh, meditating on this too. Do you think that their actions began just all at once? Do you, do you think just one day they just decided, hey, I'm just going to do this the way I want to do it? Okay. So they, this was toward the, the end of Judges. They had gotten comfortable. You know, they had forgotten of what happened in the wilderness, the crossing over into the promised land. And now they've, they've kind of become comfortable. So, you know, they, they had to have an example from somebody. You know, they, they didn't just immediately start disobeying God. But uh, another thing, too, is uh, Lori and I was talking this morning about it. Um, in chapter 1, you know, Hannah was the main character, and it talked about how involved she was with Samuel and her praying for, the son, for, for Samuel and that she would dedicate him uh, to the temple in service to God. It, it never mentions uh, Eli's wife. So you just wonder, did God leave that out for a reason? You know, why, why is that not mentioned? Was, did, did something happen? Did they not have influence from their mother? You know, I just often wonder that. Sometimes these Bible stories, you've got to get into the story and sit down and look around and try to put yourself in their shoes and try to figure out, okay, why did this happen? Why is God recording this? He's not recording that. How does that affect me? What do I take from that to help me in my journey? Comments. You know, there's just such contrast there. you got Hannah. She prays for her son. She dedicates him to the Lord. And then you have this story of these two fellows that's already priest and what they're doing. But, you know, it's like it kind of makes you wonder. So, Yes, I thought about that too. You know, we're going to get into that a little bit more here in just a a moment. But, you know, was, was Eli just a, you know, there's different types of personalities. There's, there's people who are non-confrontational. You know, they're, they're going to avoid conflict, whether it means standing up for right or they're just, they're just going to avoid it totally. And then, you, on the other hand, you've got folks that are going to just jump on everything and it's going to be their way or the highway. So, you know, you wonder if Eli was just one of those um, persons that was just non-confrontational or he felt like it was out of his control. So a lot of thoughts there. Bilal, am I saying that right? All right. Okay. Well, you know, another thought too is um, the Israelite people. They they should have known too what was supposed to be happening. Did did nobody you know know what was going on? Did they not say anything? It it would be like um, a, a congregation and the elders are leading the congregation in an unscriptural way. 
you know, are, is the congregation not going to say anything? You know, you know, it's it's up to us as believers in God to to be a part of that. I mean, if that you know, if that makes sense. Um, okay. Well, there you go. Well, he was weaned, and there's a lot of debate on when that was. That's a good question. But you know, it, another another thing, a lot of people they they talk about when he was left with Eli was when he was weaned. And uh, now this is just me talking. I'm not. I'm, this is not book, chapter, and verse. Their weaned may have meant something different than what we think is being weaned physically, as far as food. I, I don't see somebody leaving a a child that needs a lot of care and with Eli. He had to be a certain age to, you know, to actually leave him. So um, Harold, you know, that's that's a good point. I, you know, um, he he definitely had some some upbringing before he was left, and maybe maybe. Um, Maybe Eli seen his mistakes in his two sons. Maybe he recognized some things that maybe he didn't do that he is doing different with Samuel. Is that right? Okay. So, you know, oftentimes when we see our mistakes and we realize they're mistakes, we learn from our mistakes if we're honest with ourselves. Let's move on. Um, it goes on to say that there would, would not be any old men in the house, verse 32, um, that they would be cut off, uh, that Eli's eyes uh, would be consumed, and it would grieve his heart. Um, you know, the man of God was given this this uh, prophecy to him, and it's kind of like the good news, the bad news. Um, and it talked about uh, that his anointed would walk before my anointed forever. I will raise up a faithful priest for myself who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a secure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. What is this prophecy relating to? Okay, I think the key word is forever. Uh, it, it, some scholars talk about part of this is referring to Samuel, and then there would be some good men to follow in the kings, some bad, some good, but then ultimately the uh, messianic prophecy of Christ would be forever. All right, let's move on. Any more comments, questions on chapter 2? We're going to jump on into chapter 3. Okay. All right, chapter 3. Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Uh, of course, we've, we've already talked about one of my questions here is what age do you think Samuel was at this point? Uh, which that was earlier, but far as his um, 
getting the revelation from God, how old do you think Samuel was at this point? Obviously, time had passed from the time that he was dropped off until the time that God actually spoke to him. Okay? Okay? Uh, One point that my wife, which is way smarter than myself, pointed out, and I hadn't thought about this, but when it talks about his eyesight, um, when Hannah was praying, what did Eli notice? Okay. If I take my glasses off and I'm looking at something close, I, I'm not going to be able to tell. So his eyes were good at that time. Right. All right. But to see somebody moving their lips at any distance, your eyesight has to be pretty good. Maybe not perfect, but, but pretty good. And then it well, let's let's just read on here and we'll 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 kind of get to my point. Um, verse two. It happened at the time as Eli was lying down in his place. Now his eyesight had begun to grow dim, and he could not see well. And the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. That was the Lord that that the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. So the Lord called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you shall say, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So at this point, it tells us that Eli's eyesight was very bad. Um, why did why did Samuel think that this was Eli calling him instead of God? Okay. Okay. But would it have been a different voice or no? Okay. I, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking if I'm, if I'm saying and I hear this voice, okay, why would he have immediately ran to Eli? Okay. He, he couldn't see. And we find out later that he was a large man. He was old, so Eli probably called to Samuel for a lot of things, for help. So he immediately, you know, runs to him. But it's still, again, I'm thinking um, that can't be right. 
It's 10 after. Okay. Anyways, I'll I'll try to move faster. Um, You know, for whatever reason, he didn't realize this was God. And that just amazes me that, uh, you know, after this many times he gets called by God and he's still, but it's back to, it, it points out that he did not know God yet. But it's just, it's just amazing that, uh, all right, I, I got a trick question. And I'm going to warn you up front, it's a trick question. You have to read very closely. Uh, how many times did God call Samuel's name during this, this particular event? Anybody else? Okay. I'll give you a clue. Read, read verse 10 again. Real closely and think about it. Okay. Read it very carefully. Do your math. Exactly. How many times? Okay, but he went, he did this four times. Four times two. Would it be eight? I think that's right. It says, as the times before, this was the fourth time, right? So eight, eight times. Okay. Questions or comments so far? Okay. And it says, as he did before. So I'm taking that that he did the same thing every time. It's just Samuel didn't know who he was. Uh, Another something I'd like to just throw out there, other places in the Bible that use uh, the here I am statements. Can you think of any other stories in the Bible where where, uh, God speaks to someone and they say, here I am? Okay, I'll just read them off. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1. Um, God's testing Abraham. Uh, Abraham uh, responds to Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, and verse 7. Jacob tricks his father for the birthright, Genesis 27 and 18. Um the Lord spoke to Jacob in a dream, Genesis 31, verse 11. Again, God spoke to Jacob in a dream, Genesis 46, and verse 2. God speaking to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3, chapter 3, and verse 4. Isaiah has visions, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6. What about uh, Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus? Of course, this was Jesus speaking to him at that point. And then Ananias in a vision, Acts 9 and verse 10. And then one of the very first, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, God called God called to Adam asking, where are you? Adam did not respond, here I am, but I heard your voice and I hid myself. So, thank you for your attention and you are dismissed. Thank you.